For nine years, Vanessa Slavich took a traditional reactive whack-a-mole approach to manage her battle against a rare and aggressive tumor, working with highly specialized doctors in various treatment silos. Frustrated with the outcomes, this year, Slavich is taking a new, more proactive and strategic approach. She's using her career in technology startups as a model for turbocharging her research and treatment options in a unique way, which she describes in a recent post in Substack called The Startup Body, Managing My Healthcare Like a Boss. Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is Techtopia. Vanessa Slavich is taking a strategic approach to combat her rare tumor in collaboration with Pete Kane. He's founder and executive director at Research to the People, a nonprofit biomedical research initiative based in San Francisco. Research to the People helps patients co-lead and direct new research and treatment options for their conditions. The group is creating a bold new model for patient-centric treatment and giving voice to patients who are grappling with rare and complex diseases. Slavich and Kane are both here today to talk about their collaboration and how it represents a milestone for the future of personalized medicine. Vanessa and Pete, welcome to Techtopia. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Vanessa, tell us when and how you first found out about your tumor and what kind of tumor it is. I found out about it in 2011. I had just started working at Square. It was an early startup back then. And I was actually at my friend's graduation and the chair was hitting my back in a very particular way. And I, I remember like shifting back and forth and being like, man, this chair sucks. And then my friend looked at my back and she's like, oh, you have a little bump. Um, and I ended up getting a biopsy and uh, they found out it was a, what's called a desmoid tumor. It's also called aggressive fibromatosis and it's a rare tumor. You're more likely to get struck by lightning um, than have this tumor. There's about 900 cases per year in the United States. And it basically is part of my connective tissue. So it's everywhere in my body, but it's considered locally aggressive in that it likely won't show up in my foot or my brain. Um, it'll probably always be somewhere near my back. Um, but in the last 10 years, we haven't found a really effective treatment option. What was it like, you know, to know that you had a tumor that was rarer than being struck by lightning? That must have been quite, quite a shock. Yeah, I think, you know, like the like optimist in me is like, wow, I'm so special and unique. <laughs> I'm really one of a kind. And then actually at one point, so part of the reason I'm working with Pete now is um, we've done quite a bit of genetic testing in this time period, and we've never found the traditional molecular markers of a desmoid tumor. So I've had one doctor tell me it looks like a desmoid and smells like a desmoid, but we can't actually prove it's a desmoid. And I even got a biopsy a month ago and they tested again and it, it came up with the same conclusion. And so there's a possibility that my tumor is like also a rare one in, in the world of desmoids. And so um, I could be like one of a kind, <laughs> which intellectually is like really fascinating. And working with Pete, I told him this week, like the innovation side of this, I love. And it's like, wow, this is so like interesting. <laughs> and then I'm like, but it really sucks. Like, <laughs> so I, I, I'm really curious about it, but it's also like uh, really pretty overwhelming. I guess the startup techie geek and you really appreciates it, but at an emotional level, it packs a punch, doesn't it? For sure. Now, you've given the tumor a nickname. Tell us how that came about and, and why you call it what you do. 
My tumor is called Ursula, um, which is funny because my fiance used to date someone named Ursula. So <laughs> it's a complex, <laughs> a complex name, but um, I actually named her a long time ago uh, when I found out that uh, the way desmoid tumors kind of react is that um, they don't uh, invade in that like it wouldn't show up in my blood as I was kind of explaining, but they push and they have tentacles. So there's no, like the idea of like clear margins is kind of nebulous, partly because it's part of the connective tissue. And so it's kind of this like evil thing that's like very hard to die um, or very hard to kill and it has tentacles. And so I started getting this image of Ursula from the Little Mermaid and um, it just felt fitting. And then after uh, a pretty massive surgery I had in 2018, it came back in three places. And so now like Ursula has her little eels and like, it's just like the metaphor keeps going, but I actually met another Desmoid patient probably five years ago and she also named hers Ursula for the same reason. So I feel like it's quite fitting. That's interesting. Now it's, it's rare, but very aggressive at a local level. And it's, it's not a cancer, right? But it acts like one and it's typically treated by cancer doctors. Um, what kinds of treatments have you had to date? I mean, this has been going on for a long time, hasn't it? Yeah, like as I mentioned, 10 years. So um, depending who you ask, it'll be classified as cancer or not. As you mentioned, like technically it doesn't metastasize. So in a typical sense, and you wouldn't consider it as cancer, but I had one doctor tell me it's actually worse because it's part of my connective tissue, um, which is everywhere. And so uh, my treatments, are, as you mentioned, are all cancer centers. I get treated at UCSF, Ohio State. I'm now being treated at um, MSK in New York as well. And the treatments I've had today, I've had surgery twice. I've had an operation called HIFU, which is high intensity frequency ultrasound, which they basically hack an MRI bed and shoot laser beams um, at your back, um, which I did twice. And then I did two months of radiation um, I had a really massive surgery in 2018 where they took half my lat out and um, part of the spinal processes and then put a big skin graft, basically the size of a sheet of paper over everything. Um, and then it recurred after that, which then uh, came back in three places and then it pushed through the skin graft. So now I have an open wound. And then since then I've been on three different types of chemotherapy. And we're looking at kind of really interesting, there's a lot of progress in this space. Um, and so we're looking at more like localized chemotherapy options where the same chemo compound could be put directly on the tumor instead of systemically throughout my entire body. So that's like some of the possibilities in the future. Uh, but then with research to the people and all these different doctors I'm working with now, we're considering like um, basically vaccine type technologies and gene therapy. And there's a lot of other like new innovations that could be potential treatments in the future. So you, you said in your piece that you were taking a fairly traditional approach to managing your treatment and care and you, you likened it to or contrasted it with like hair care. Can you give us that analogy and explain what the change has been in how you manage your care? So for a long time, so um, I also used to race Ironman triathlons and be super active. And actually like while I was getting radiation, I did an Ironman, you know, it's like, I was just kind of like, cool, like, let's go. And so I tried to compartmentalize it, basically put Ursula in a box and uh, live my life. And so I was still working at startups and crazy hours. And I did research in a refugee camp in Tanzania and 
you know, at the time I was on chemo and struggling walking and my hair is falling out. So it's like, I've definitely tried to like live my life despite all this happening in the background. And um, I use the like hair metaphor. Like I have a, I have an amazing hairdresser. I've been going to him for almost 10 years and um, he's helped me. Like basically I go to him and I'm like, hey, like I want, I, I've actually quite a few times like wanted to look like Taylor Swift. Like I just think her styles have been lovely over the years. And so I'm like, okay, like this photo of Taylor Swift. And then he's like, cool. And then he just like does it, right? And he he cuts it, he cleans it, he styles it. Like he does everything and I don't have to think about it. And I wanted that from the medical like doctors and field and that like I have my oncologist and I just want to go to him and be like, okay, like this is what I'm noticing. And then we talk about the scan and we're like, cool like this should be your treatment and like yeah great and that's like what I want but that is like so far from reality um and this is not a fault of the doctors right it's just a part of the complexity of the system but b the way that the medical institutions are set up right now and kind of the medical industry at least in the U.S. is it's all around silos and specialties and the patient is the only connection between all these different doctors and so in one regard, it's really empowering that like I can make decisions and navigate my care, but am I equipped to do that? And like, how do I, how do I actually navigate when one specialist is telling me A and another specialist is telling me B? Um, and I'm really trying to get clarity, not consensus. And I think the default is you kind of get into a world of consensus. Well, if three out of four doctors recommend that I get chemo embolization, then maybe I should get chemo embolization, where in reality, that might not be the best option for me, especially when I don't have data to clarify what that path should be. So we've been flying by blind. It literally feels, you know, like you put your finger in the, in the air and you're like, hmm, it feels warm today. You know, it's like, can we measure it? Can I tell you what, 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 what's the temperature outside? I kind of started with all of my treatment at UCSF with one doctor and then I went to MD Anderson in Texas and Ohio, and then was kind of triaging decisions, as I mentioned, looking for consensus. And then now it's a totally different approach in that I recognize that I just need to drive the process. And P has definitely helped a ton with this mindset and the team at Research of the People. And so instead of like waiting to be told what to do or what my options are, it's like doing a lot of independent research, deciding what data we need, having an independent team, we have weekly standups, et cetera. And so we're, we're kind of like, we have our own actually three-part strategic plan and I'm tapping into these different institutions and doctors that align to my plan. Um, and so kind of going back to the hair metaphor and the, like, it's a totally, I'm not going to one doctor or one hairdresser for a plan. I'm, I'm coming up with my own and, and tapping into the resources that I need to execute on it. So Pete, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you founded uh, Research to the People. Hi, yeah, so the, the organization actually had, a, had, had quite a, a runway to, um, to become what we, what we are today. You know, in, in short, what we're doing right now is working with um, patients with, with the most challenging cases uh, where they're in um, rare cancer or rare um, disease. And really, really patients that are like Vanessa who have been on, uh, you know, nine lines of therapy and, and still, um, still trying to figure out what, what is going to um, work for them. And especially, um, you know, in, in Vanessa's case, it's especially unique because it hasn't been able to be um, clinically diagnosed as a desmoid tumor. Our program um, got started in, 
2017. And you know, back in the early days, we were a we were a community group that was doing a lecture series about how AI is being used in in healthcare. And we had, you know, just some of the smartest people showing up on a monthly basis to um, our lecture series in the Bay Area. I was really eager to do um, more with the, the the wonderful folks who were who were showing up. So I had a, had the idea to um, get a a data set from like a hospital or something that we could work on as an open source like community um, project. So I called up the hospitals that I knew and said, "Hey, do you have any?" rad data that we can hack on as a as an ai community group and you know every hospital said no so uh, approximately at the same around the same time i met um ono faber who is now a, a quite well-known um patient and, and founder in the in the bay area and ono had his um has a rare condition called uh, nf2 neurofibromatosis type 2. he had his tumors sequenced at the at the broad institute so he had exceptional data for um for his tumors and he was he was dissatisfied with the um current clinical options for nf2 and and was seeking a um alternative routes so ono and i decided to do um host a, a hackathon where we bring together a bunch of um scientists interdisciplinary scientists across ai bioinformatics um biology you know, computational biology and you know, get everyone in the same room and release his genetic data uh, to to the group and see what um, see what more could be done or what more, what new avenues could be um, presented for for Ono and Ono's um, case. And so, how did that then lead to research to the people as an organization? So after the after the first event, you know, we there's 150 people that showed up um, at Google in San Francisco to work on Ono's Ono's case. And you know the the energy in the room, the all the cues uh, was what it was just it was it was more amazing than we could ever have predicted. You know the energy that it created was 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 phenomenal. You know folks were the passion that the scientists came to the room with, um, and and being able to work with a patient and contribute to a patient case was. You know, it, it it cued us in that we were onto something um, really important and and really really big, and we you know shifted our entire organization to to replicate what we had done with Ono for for other patients, and the second patient we worked with was actually um, a participant who helped analyze Ono's tumors in the first in the first case, um, Bill Passman. He he approached me afterwards and said, "Hey, you know, I have a rare kidney cancer. Can you do the same thing for me?" Um, and so we. We embarked on getting uh, sequencing for for Bill's tumors and, and replicated the same type of event. And since then, we've worked with um, two other patients, so four patients in total. And uh, currently, we are working with uh, four patients in 2021. So you're you're working on a small scale, but the the results and the model could be broadened out. Uh, do you believe uh, uh, on a large scale? I, I believe it can be expanded uh, quite a bit. Um, w- whether whether or not this work can be can truly scale to uh, to the masses is is TBD. Um, I think that there's going to be a lot of technology innovation that um, comes out of our group. You know, there there frankly there already has been a lot of technology innovation that has come out of our group or or where our group has um, been a, a connecting point for scientists who go on to. Um, work on collaborations together or start, um, you know, in, in some cases, start businesses together, startups. I think we're really focused on being low volume and going really deep with 
with a with with one patient versus um, versus uh, trying to you know tackle tackle a larger space right now. And what's your background, by the way? Tell us tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I studied Chinese language and literature at uh, the University of Minnesota, uh, and then I embarked on a a long healthcare entrepreneurship journey. Started a number of healthcare startups. Uh, started the healthcare technology community based in um, Minnesota. And then when you know when I got to the Bay Area, I just defaulted to the community building um, side of what I was interested in, and that that's that's the foundation of this group. Did you say you started by by learning Mandarin? Is that what you said? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I did. Yeah. So there's a story here about how you went from Mandarin to uh, healthcare research. I don't know. You know, I studied uh, I studied Chinese language and literature in school. I mean, I have I have three Chinese um, adopted sisters, and you know, so it made it made sense. Um, but in, in terms of career, I wanted to do I wanted to be in, in healthcare and technology. That's great. So so how does it work? Say, let's take Vanessa and Ursula, and you know, she's hit a dead end in her treatment, or not entirely satisfied with the, how it's being managed. How to find the state-of-the-art research because it's such a rare condition. Uh, what happens next when, Vanessa, you, you found Pete somehow, how did that happen? And then how did you guys end up deciding to work together? Yeah, I mean, Vanessa can talk a little bit about um, about how she found out about our organization. The, f- the first thing that we do when, um, when we have a patient application process and, you know, we, we recently implemented a, um, a, a system where, uh, the, the new patients to our program are selected by the previous patients that have gone through our program um, as, a, as a committee because the, the past patients know exactly what, what makes a, a good case and a good patient for our, for our program. Uh, you know, we, we end up working extremely closely with uh, the patients and in, a, in, in, most, in a lot of cases, it becomes a, sort of a full-time a full-time position where the patient is, you know, working alongside with us um, every st- every step of the way. That's great, Vanessa. How did you find Pete? It was in December. I was looking. I was doing some research. I just just recognizing that I needed a new approach and kind of what other options were out there. And I read an article about the last case they worked on um, with a woman named Lila, who was the founder of Samosource. And um, just hearing about the approach, I was like kind of curious and then I read their website and I applied using a Google form, which I remember being like, wow, that's like so interesting for like the medical field. You know, I was like, <laughs> and then literally it was a Sunday night. And then an hour later, like I got a response being like, yeah, let's like do a call. And I was like, whoa, this is very different, you know, than any other kind of medical experience I've had. And Pete and I had a call. Um, and then we talked about like going on a bike ride when he was in town and it just felt exciting. And when we started talking, I think one of the things like Pete's downplaying a bit, but like his strength is really like the interconnection between like understanding how the hospitals work and what the doctor's motivations are and what the patient needs are and what the nonprofits and the funders, like he kind of sits at the intersection of all these different organizations and can translate and so for me, he's speaking, okay, we're going to do this hackathon. It's going to be open source. We're going to like get more reason. I'm like, cool. Yeah, got it. Like, yes, <laughs> all of the above. Um, but then when talking to doctors, it's like, okay, we're going to have a patient deep dive. You know, you're going to have access to like X and X data. We're going to do the sequencing. And so um, 
in talking with him, he was speaking my language and kind of understanding where I was at. And I was like, absolutely, this sounds amazing. And I knew that it's just something that I wanted to put my energy towards. So what does the goodbye Ursula strategic plan look like, uh, you know, in this new sort of startup scenario with your hackathons and your Slack channels and your weekly standups and, and you're, you've got a team you've put together. Tell us what it looks like and how it's different, you know, than, than traditional, um, you know, sort of relationships with doctors and all of that. So our team is currently eight people and it's cross organization and institutions. And that's just the core kind of working group that we meet weekly and have meetings with all different experts. And then the strategic plan is a three-part like phased approach. So the first part is shrinking the current tumors and hopefully kind of eliminating to some to some degree. And then once my back is flat and we have kind of that situation under control, there's going to be a different team of experts that come in um, to help actually close the wound. And one of the doctors thinks we can actually do it in a way that's cosmetically like appealing as well as like like going to stay closed and resolved. And then the third part is what's our long-term suppression strategy. Um, in the last five years, at least, um, nothing has been able to like stop the growth. Like they'll, it'll shrink and I'll go off something or recover from a surgery and then it'll come right back. And so it's been this yo-yo for the last five years. And so we need some sort of like um, systemic treatment modality. Not that I'll necessarily need to be on it forever, but we need to explore what the options are and and kind of understand at a root level what's driving the growth again because we haven't found the like traditional markers or mutations which may be there but if we do find that in the research then i could point to different clinical trials that i could be part of for example so yeah part one shrink part two close part three like a long-term strategy and then there's there's kind of the core working group but then we're tapping into different doctors and organizations based on the treatment needs or kind of the different findings at each phase. And so as part of this whole plan, there's collecting all of the data. So we had a big meeting with about 10 doctors on Monday, working through doctors and scientists, working through what is all the data we wanna collect, which is about, I think, 15 different kind of sequencing type tests. And then once we get all that together, organizing this hackathon of sorts, or this kind of patient deep dive experience. We're deciding if it's remote or in person, given COVID, um, and then actually presenting the, the findings to teams of doctors, including including my doctor, to help them navigate decision-making and, and, and help me find um, treatment options. So I'm curious to know, that what are the, the biggest obstacles both you uh, uh, and Pete uh, confront in this type of approach? I mean, one thing I'm thinking of, who's paying, right? How do insurance companies react? Is this different in any way in you know, you've got this huge team and, you know, is there, I mean, just tell me, what are the intricacies of getting somebody to pay for this stuff and then other obstacles that you might find? Vanessa, do you want to go first? Yeah. So as part of the program, um, I haven't actually paid anything yet, which is also quite amazing um, that Pete's been able to do a lot of this, like bootstrapped, but um, there's, Pete's working on like a separate kind of longer term fundraising plan for research to the people. Um, but as far as like my, my data sequencing, um, we're reaching out to the different companies like Oxford Nanopore to see if they would donate the data. Um, and then in exchange, you know, have like a case study for how the data is used. Um, but then also doing fun things like uh, familiar, I work in crypto and we're creating an NFT um, inspired by Ursula. And so that could potentially help fundraise for not only myself, but for the cohort 
research to the people. And so looking at kind of like fun, innovative ways to also bring more awareness to the program, because I do think as this program scales, um, there's going to be a lot more opportunities for people to kind of understand um, and kind of embody the like patient-led research approach. And so I, I do want to share um, this program and all the amazing things that it's already done for me with the broader tech community. What does the NFT or non-fungible token look like? What is it? Uh, so it's still a work in progress. It's actually her, her woman's name. Um, the artist's name is Kaishi, and she has some really innovative ideas. So I have a, I have a pretty massive scar on my back. And so um, related to like ecosystems and potentially something related to Ursula. But so it's going to be some sort of like physical body uh, work. Sounds great. Um, you know, you mentioned your back and in, in, uh, in your piece, I think in your earlier piece about Ursula, uh, the origin story, uh, you talked about how with your, you had massive surgery on your back and that you really couldn't bear to look at your back for almost a year. So there's, you're, you're very, um, uh, you know, strong and positive, but I see there's this huge emotional component in dealing with an adversary that just won't go away. What's that been like? It's been hard for sure. I, I've definitely gone through my own like spiritual journey in, in relation to Ursula where initially I just wanted to get back to life. And so when I was getting radiation, I was feeling really fatigued and my back was getting like really fiery and the skin was breaking down and I was, it was like emotionally like taxing. And so I, I planned a funeral for Ursula and it was Little Mermaid themed and we ate fish and it was like, yeah, see ya. And at the time she wasn't gone, uh, she was shrinking. And so um, it made me feel like I could, had something to celebrate. And so that helped, but that that was kind of, I was like, okay, so so once you're over, like I just need to get this over and be done with. And over time, I've just kind of moved into acceptance that maybe it's not going to be over. Maybe it'll never be over. I don't know. Um, but what, you know, grateful for today and grateful for this life and just trying to kind of take it as it comes and not overthink it. And in the process, especially the last five years, I've really moved a lot more to acceptance. Um, and I read a book called The Book of Joy um, with Archbishop Tutu and the Dalai Lama. And they talked about the difference between um, finding a cure but still being healed, and um, I may not never have, I may never have a cure, but I can still find healing. And so that's been a big focus for me is just um, how do I heal through this process, both physically and mentally and emotionally. And Pete, I'm sure that one of the big uh, things you offer, in addition to all of your expertise about around the healthcare system, is sort of this ability to support patients like Vanessa in in their journey as they tackle these very rare conditions. Yeah, you know, working working with patients is uh, is incredible. It's um, Vanessa has been absolutely amazing. How do you see this potentially in terms of the future and the, of precision and personalized medicine, you know, t at this incredible genetic and molecular level? And, and where do you think this can lead in the future, Pete? What do you see as your vision for this? Yeah, it's, it's a really special uh, place in time where we have um, more data types coming online, especially um, especially in the in the research research grade data coming online and more and more um, algorithms being developed to to um, provide personalized insights on this data and you know i think the, the patients like like vanessa and the patients that are sort of more advanced and and um and taking um 
taking more ownership of their care, really realizing that you know, there's a lot of there's a lot more data out there that you can get. I mean, if you read the research, there's there's incredible things happening on the research level that just like that just aren't really accessible at the at the clinical level. You know, um, the number of cancer patients that aren't getting um, sequenced is still is still quite high. And you know, there, there's one of the biggest things that people should realize is that there's there's a huge there's a huge delta between um, what's what's available through the clinic. Um, in terms of sequencing and what's what's available at a research level in terms of sequencing and, and other data generation. Uh, so, you know, part of the genesis of our program is generating research-grade data for a patient uh, and then bringing that that data to um, the researchers who are experts in the data and seeing, seeing what more we can, um, you know, uncover and, and provide insight back to uh, the patient and their, their doctors. Vanessa, what do you see uh, as the future, having actually, from a, from a patient perspective, having been through all of this? I think a big part of it is the mindset leading into it. Like moving from, I go to this doctor or I go to this hospital. I've, I've learned like a lot of things, like the bigger the hospital brand, the more risk adverse they're going to be because they're protecting that brand. And so the best like cancer centers might not actually be the best treatment. And so the, a big part of it is that you're the one living the reality. And so as the patient, and so you have to advocate for yourself at the end of the day. And it's overwhelming when you are the one like getting treatment managing all this stuff. Like you need a team around you. That, that's like literally the only way to do it. And I'm so grateful to Pete and the rest of our team for kind of jumping in. Like Pete's educated me so much on gene sequencing. I, I was watched the docu-series. I read the book. Like I'm like, I'm like learning so much about this process. And he's definitely helped educate and advocate for me. And in that process, I've been owning more and more of my journey and my, my kind of own medical care. And I think this is the future that the reality is it takes a lot of time and energy. And so again, the team is an essential component of that. Um, but if we can get real data, and this is where like the startup and like, like data-driven decision-making, right? Like data is not the answer. Data is not like everything, right? It's like, it's art and science. But right now in the last 10 years, it's only been art in a way. Like, it's like, well, we could try this, we could try that. And there's been no data to kind of justify any decision for my care ever. And so I can be on some chemo for a year and, and, and not know if it's going to work. Even the way we measure it, like the MRIs are kind of a broken system too. And so this kind of like patient-centered care where it's like literally about my case and not about some standard norm. Like clinically proven doesn't matter when you have a rare disease because it's it's rare, like the stats don't matter. And so what are my stats? And so I think the future is really driving your own kind of data discovery and bringing a team around and then tapping into the care that you need. And, and, and I hope that more people have access to this because it's really, I for, I predict it's going to be a huge game changer in my care. I, I was very struck by uh, one of your thoughts in your piece. Uh, you say, as this journey continues with no end in sight, I have slowly transitioned towards a mindset of acceptance and love. I attempt to speak positively to Ursula to check in and see what she needs. I've slowly let go of my suffering and moved to a place where I can mentally and emotionally help others and surround myself internally and externally with joy. And I was just so struck by this idea of being able to speak positively to this incredibly aggressive tumor that's haunting you. And, you know, this huge step, you know, that you've taken from when you had 
major surgery and you know you were you were dealing with all of the consequences of that um, what advice would you give others of how they can, who are dealing with these situations of how they can get to the place where you are of being able to speak positively to to a tumor that's that's uh, endangering them are you familiar with the word equanimity it's like that still point between effort and ease and so acceptance, right? Like some people are like, oh, you can't just be accepting and passive, right? And so like there's this, that's kind of like one end of the spectrum, but you also like my initial approach was like, let's get, this is going down, you know? And so it was probably like the other side of that spectrum. And so I've personally found this state of equanimity by going through the range of like acceptance to like full kind of aggression. And um, I think it's, it is an evolution. There's something called, um, the grief cycle. And when I get like new information, like that the tumor is growing, like I definitely go through my own grief cycle of denial, etc. But then eventually I get to acceptance and I have a bunch of tools. I play the harmonium, I hike, I bike, I have a community, I cook, like there's all these things that help bring me and ground me. And then once I can process the reality of this kind of situation or whatever's going on, I move into planning. And that's in December when I reached out to Pete, that's where I was. I was like, okay, I need a plan. And so I think part of it is just recognizing as a patient or as someone who's dealing with something kind of heavy and overwhelming is like, where am I on? What, where am I on this grief cycle? Like, cause it's overwhelming. And again, right after surgery, I wasn't ready for a plan. And so part of what's helped me is recognizing where I'm at, acknowledging it, moving myself through the cycle. And then once I'm ready to plan, like finding the right people or resources to help me kind of put together what I need to do and kind of move, move on. But the reality is like, if you got some cancer diagnosis today, like you're probably not going to be ready to engage with research to the people tomorrow. It is definitely a journey. Um, so just being kind to yourself and, and knowing that you might just be in the cycle and you might be in this process and um, finding whatever tools help you lift out of that cycle so that then you can find the people who can really make a difference for you. That's amazing. And you even managed to run a half marathon last March in the middle of all of this. I, I don't know how you pulled that off. That was amazing. It was actually March 1st. So it was right before the shutdown. Um, so I'm so grateful I did it. And um, I was on chemo at the time and I ran 830 pace, which I was pretty proud of. Um, and yeah, it was my first big run post-surgery and it felt like a huge accomplishment just getting back out there and training with my good friend, Ariel, waking up every day and, and, and just um, seeing what the body is capable of. Physical and symbolic. Exactly. Wonderful. Pete, do you have any closing thoughts on, on this journey that patients like Vanessa are going through and on your um, efforts to try to help them? The, the program that we've put together is, is really, um, you know, is, is really possible because of the, the huge, the huge uh, biotech influence in the barrier and the universities here. And, you know, none of, none of what we would have done, none of what we've built um, and how we've worked with patients would be possible without, um, without an incredible number of industry and academic partners and uh, just, to, you know, all the scientists willing to dedicate their time to, to a patient case. So I think, um, you know, I like to default to, to their, their accomplishments and the patients versus, you know, our, our program. I, I really just feel like a, a connector in between, uh, in between the two spaces. And you have some really important strategic partnerships, both completed and underway as well with some of these major uh, healthcare institutions and, and academic institutions as well. Yes, we're, we're excited to, we're excited to make some announcements soon. 
That's great. Well, Vanessa and Pete, thank you so much for joining me today and for this great conversation. Thank you, Tadra. Thank you so much. Vanessa Slavich is head of community for Cello, an open source platform making financial tools accessible to anyone with a mobile phone. Slavich is taking an innovative and strategic approach to combat her rare and aggressive tumor. You can read about her efforts in her fascinating new post in Substack called The Startup Body, Managing My Health Like a Boss. And don't miss Vanessa's original story about her battle with the tumor, which she's nicknamed Ursula, also in Substack and titled Ursula, The Tumor Origin Story. You can follow Vanessa on Substack under Vanessa Slavich. Pete Kane is founder and executive director at Research to the People, a nonprofit biomedical research initiative based in San Francisco. Research to the People helps patients co-lead and direct new research and treatment options for their conditions. The group is creating a bold new model for patient-centric treatment and giving voice to patients who are grappling with rare and complex diseases. This is Tectopia. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Tectopia is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of Tectopia. I'll see you then.